going to be talking about Abraham today, and I would just like to read from, uh, you can keep your finger in Genesis chapter 12, because that's really where Abraham's story kind of starts out. But I want you to turn now with your finger in your Bible at Genesis 12, I want you to turn all the way to the New Testament to Acts chapter 7, which gives us some insight into Abraham, and then I will read this verses 1 through 4, and then we'll have a word of prayer to start our service off. So the high priest said, are these things so? And this is the stoning of Stephen, and Stephen gives his defense, beginning in verse 2. And Stephen said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before He lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And then he, Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to his country, this country in which you are now living. And I just want to say that that is basically the call of Abraham, and uh, we'll get into some of the details of what actually took place in that whole situation in the sermon this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these Bible characters who are such a testimony to us. They are the heroes of the faith. Many of them are found in Hebrews chapter 11. And we see that their lives are actually a testimony to us and a model for us to follow in many ways, in their faith, in the way that they continued to trust you. Father, every one of them had failings in their lives, and yet you continue to use them and to bring them along, to guide them, to direct them, and they humbly followed you. Father, may we learn that even though we have messed up, even though we have failed you, that if we are truly your children, your Holy Spirit is able to strengthen us again and use us. Father, help us not to lose heart in well-doing, but to continue to press on even as our father Abraham did. And we'll see that, Lord. Thank you for these sketches that help us to understand that you love us as your children, and you want our best for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Christian life is a life in totality, right? You've heard me talk about this. It's not one life that we live at work and another life at church. True biblical Christianity is life, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. All life, private life, school life, home life, work life, entertainment life, athletic life. In the hard times and in the good times, our Christianity is lived out moment by moment. As Paul once said, so whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other places, the Christian life is referred to as a walk in the sense of daily life lived out, our lifestyle, if you will. We walk as children of light, 
Paul teaches us. He says that we walk in faith. And our purpose in this study, Romans 4.12 says, we are to walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. So right there in the New Testament tells us that Abraham is an example and we're to follow his example. Not in all ways that he lived, as we'll see, but in the way that he walked in faith, the steps of faith. And so I think we ought to know how Abraham walked in faith, don't you? It's a great story, and I love, I love the Old Testament. I love how the Spirit of God takes real history and facts as they were recorded day by day, and they're presented to us in such a way as to provide a pattern of the development of spiritual life. Now, it's not just imagination to view the Old Testament in this manner. Ample proof is found in the New Testament itself to indicate that God planned the structure of his book with this in mind. This is staggering when you think about it. In the 10th chapter of the first book to Corinthians, Paul referred to the history of Israel and finished by saying this, quote, Now these things happened to them as a warning or as a type, if you will, but they were written down for our instruction. For our instruction. Paul talking to the people at Corinth. Upon whom the end of the ages has come. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. But again in Romans 15, he says this. For whatever was written in former days, referring to the, what we call the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, woe be unto you that disregard the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with story after story, many narratives that show us how we can live by faith. Jeremiah warned Judah in his day when she was facing impending doom, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads, look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. The ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's found in Jeremiah 6.16. So even during Jeremiah's day, he said, look backwards. Look backwards at the examples that you have in the scrolls in the scriptures, and follow them and find rest for your souls. Well, Abraham's life from beginning to end is clearly a pattern for a person of faith. Again and again in the New Testament, he's held up as an example of how God works in the life of a person to fulfill his promises. Abraham could easily be called the chief of all the heroes of faith that are recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 real quickly, and we'll take a little look at Abraham. Look at uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, and we'll follow it along. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
That's faith. God told him, go. He said, okay, and he went, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he lived in an alien, as an alien in the land of promise, that's Canaan, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of death, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead, he was a hundred, hundred years old, <laughs> at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So Abraham is an example of faith for us. And I want to talk uh, just at the beginning of this character sketch about Abraham and his faith, his conversion, if you will. We read Acts 7, and it tells us that the God of glory actually appeared to Abraham. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. There was somehow an appearance of God to this man as he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a pagan, pagan society. In all the Bible, only one man is called the friend of God, and that's Abraham. You've got David, who is called the man after God's own heart, and we have Enoch, who walked with God and was no more because God took him. But only this man has been called the friend of God. We see that in James 2.23 and in certain places in the Old Testament as well. The man we know as Abraham was called Abram, not Abraham, Abram, for 99 years of his life. And then his name was changed by God to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. And God renamed him Abraham, meaning the father of many nations, at a critical time in his faith journey. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Names are really important in the Old Testament. A lot of them had meanings and were uh, indicative of a circumstance of that specific person. Now, Abraham lived around 2000 BC, and just a few generations earlier, men had corrupted themselves so much that God sent a flood and wiped mankind off the face of the earth, except for Noah and his family. And then they discredited their humanity by building a tower called the Tower of Babel, and he had to come down and confuse their languages. Moses delivered this information to Israel. Remember the context of Genesis. It's Moses teaching Israel after they left 400 years of captivity in, in uh, Egypt. And so he's given them a bit of understanding of their history. And Moses gave them this understanding of their history to show how those who came out from the flood related to their father, Abraham. But now, once again, in the land of Mesopotamia and an area called Ur of the Chaldeans, humanity was pursuing the same course filled with every kind of vice and perversion. It is the same all the time. Every generation just seems to get worse and worse and worse. Ur was a seaport on the Persian Gulf at the mouth of the Euphrates River. Today, that would be in modern 
Iraq. And many say it was in close proximity to the traditional site of the Garden of Eden. I don't know about that. I'm not certain about that. It was the most magnificent city in all the world at that time. You know, we often think of the Old Testament, and this is because of our public school educations (laughs) and contemporary thoughts on those times, as these people were like cavemen. That really is not true. Ur of the Chaldeans was a magnificent center of manufacturing and farming and shipping. It had fabulous uh, fertility and wealth. And it had a marvelous library as well. It was a thriving metropolis. It was not a caveman's place to live. And it was down the Persian Gulf... And they would take ships and cargoes of copper and hard stone and deliver them to ports along the way. For years, skeptics said that there never was such a place as Ur of the Chaldeans. But during the years of 1922 to 1934, C.T. Woolley of the British Museum thoroughly explored the secrets of these ruins and proved the naysayers wrong on every level. That's happened over and over. Bible archaeology is interesting to study. Now, the most conspicuous building in the city in Abram's day was the ziggurat. The ziggurat, thinking back to a temple tower where they would worship the zodiac, the stars, and so forth, probably patterned after the same Tower of Babel, which was a ziggurat. And such towers were square and they were terraced, and built on solid brick. Now, I I want you to think massive, okay? Because each terrace was planted with trees and shrubbery, and the city had a tower with main temple towers in it, and one was dedicated to Nanar. Nanar was the moon god, and he was married to another god, his wife, Nigal. And you can find all this information in a Bible encyclopedia. I would encourage getting the Zondervan Bible Encyclopedia. And if you don't have enough shekels to get a Bible Encyclopedia and buy it and own it, you can go and look up Encyclopedia, what is it, International Encyclopedia of the Bible, ISBE. So um, look these things up. This is where I get my information to give you background. It's all so important because otherwise we'd be thinking of Abram as some kind of a caveman. And he wasn't. He was a cultured man. He was a very rich man. God could have once again sent his wrath against this rebellious people worshiping moon gods and ziggurats, but instead he chose to work through one man. And just as he used the man Noah and showered his grace on him and his immediate family, now Yahweh called out Abram from the adulterous surroundings to a land that he would reveal to him in time. You see, in Acts 7, we read that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And when he first came to Abraham in Ur, he appeared to him. And this was before he lived in Haran, it says. And Abraham responded as God intended. Kinda. Kinda. Okay? You see, Abraham's calling. Abraham's calling, we read about in 
Genesis 11. Look at Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah was Abraham's father. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, and Abram's wife, And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went out as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. The conversion of Abraham is further described in the call of God in his life. God appeared to him and commanded him in very precise way with the following instructions. He says, I want you to leave your homeland. Look at verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Leave your homeland. Leave your relatives. Leave your family, your father's family, and go someplace else that I'm going to show you. Might I just point out a few things here in this call of Abraham. Number one, Abraham was not seeking God. Nowhere does it say he was seeking the God of heaven. God approached Abraham. Also, Abraham did not somehow earn God's attention by doing good deeds. God came to Abraham. God initiated things. Also, God's movement towards Abram was completely God's decision. It was motivated by God's mercy and grace freely according to God's own good pleasure. Nothing to do with Abraham. Abraham was the recipient. The sovereignty of God is at work here, and it's very, very evident. God had a plan for redemption from before the foundation of the world. We've talked about that. And Abraham fit into his overarching plan of redemption. So God's sovereignty is displayed at every turn in his dealings with Abraham, his protection of Abraham, his choosing, his calling of Abraham. It's all God, and Abraham receives it. Now, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the elements of God's call on Abraham. He says, leave your country. (laughs) The spiritual implications I'd like to point out here is that this is the path of all of us who are children of God. All of us. There's a complete break with all that was before. For Abram was clear he was to leave Ur and go to a land that God was going to show him. Leave and go. 
To leave his country meant to leave everything that was familiar to him. Hebrews 11.8 informs us that Abraham did this by faith. He obeyed in faith. He went without knowing where he was going to go. And there's a corollary to the one who responds to the gospel message today. I'll never forget responding to the gospel message. I didn't even know that there were other Christians around. That's how naive I was in coming to the faith. But I knew that God was God. I knew that Jesus Christ was his son. And I knew that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive me of my sins And I believed that. Talk about not knowing where I was going. I had no idea he was going to send me to Taliabo, Indonesia. He did. (laughs) He knew all about it. And looking back at my life, I think there were many times the angels cursed me for what they had to do to keep me and preserve me until God could get a hold of my life. And I responded to him. And then the sanctification process began. But there's a corollary. You know, it's just like the Thessalonian believers, right? After hearing God's call through the gospel that Paul brought to them, they turned from their idols and turned to. They turned away from and turned to. There's a a complete severance from what was behind, and a new life begins. Man, that's true for me. I became saved when I was about 19 years old, and honestly, Those 19 years were a wash. I really don't even feel like I began to live until I got saved. And he began to do a work in my life. And that's the way it is for every believer, and that's the way it was with Abram. And it was done in faith, believing God's word to him. Abram didn't know where he was going, and neither does the one confronted with the gospel truly know what to expect. But both obey the call of God by faith. It's a marvelous thing. And, and that's what we all have in common as children of God. That's why baptisms are so cool, right? Really thinking about getting a, a baptismal thing, kind of a temporary or whatever you call it. You know, I, I don't want to say a, a, a watering trough, but kind of like that. So that we can do it more than just once a year at our picnic. Because I love the testimonies. No matter how diverse they are, they always kind of come back around and boop. And I saw that I was a sinner. And God opened my eyes and I repented of that sin and I, I turned away from that sin and I turned to God. Every single one of us has that testimony at some point. Leading up to it, lives are all different. The circumstances are all different, but you always come back to that. It's beautiful. So he says, leave your country, everything that's familiar. And I want you to leave your relatives too. Now, relatives can exert strong influences over our lives, can't they? I see some Hmong brothers and sisters out there. Don't tell me about family influence, right? I know I'm Italian, okay? I was raised as a Catholic. I went to parochial school. But then I had the blessed experience of being in a tribe for 20 years. So I know tribal life. I know what clans are like. And believe me, even if you're not Hmong, even if you've not been to a tribe, even if you're not Catholic, even if you're not Italian, your immediate family of orientation has an incredible influence on your life. And if they're not believers, when you become a believer, it gets hairy. Really, really hairy. Harry, doesn't it? Well, do you think that happened 
to Abraham? Abraham, you're packing up all your stuff. You're quite a rich guy, you and Tara and your family. You're leaving? Yep, where are you going? Don't have a clue. What? What are you going to do? Just following what God said to me. The moon God? No. Yahweh. What? Who's that? I mean, you, this is real stuff. It really happened. So you, you can't doubt that something like that took place. And yet he persevered and pressed on. Now, it's really interesting. The believer is called to do the same. Family should not be allowed to deflect the call of God on your life. Jesus even said once, he who loves father and mother more than me, right, more than me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10, 37. Now, the emphasis there is more than. Christ must be supreme in your life. When he says jump, we say How high? He's got to be Lord of your life. If he is not Lord of your life, I doubt very much if you're actually saved. You might be making all the right words come out of your mouth about Christianity, but if you're running your own life still and he is not Lord of your life, and he doesn't cut across your path sometimes as he leads you, I'd really, really question your conversion, to be honest with you. The idea here is Jesus, being Christ, must have first place in your life, even if it means instead of previous loyalties to relatives. And that was the challenge that Abram faced. And so he is a testimony and an example for us. And then he says, leave your father's house. For Abram, it was quite clear that God was calling him away from Ur and all of his connections with it, including his father, Terah's house. Now, Terah most certainly was an idol worshiper. He worshiped that moon god that the ziggurat was dedicated to. And it's certain many other lifestyle issues in Terah's house needed to be left behind. And so God called Abraham away from his father's house. Now, it's no different with the new believer. Once we were in Adam, and now we are in Christ... The old has passed away, and behold, all things should become new. But sometimes we're so attached to the old, and I'll just liken it to our father's house, the traditions, the things we grew up with, the way that we live our lives, that it's a hindrance to our new life in Christ. And what we need to do is step out of the old and into the new. He'll take care of us. It takes an act of faith. You've got to have confidence in what God can do in your life. And then the sad thing is with our brother here, Abram, our father of the faith, conversion means to turn 180 and go in a different direction. Well, many in the church have never come to that point. Instead, they've substituted religion and activities attending church and Bible studies and volunteering their time and giving money, but they have never repudiated their old life for the new life. You see, repudiation, a word that is almost, I don't know, when's the last time you heard anything spoken about repudiation? What does to repudiate mean? Well, a simple dictionary says it's rejection. 
renunciation, renouncement, abandonment, forsaking, giving up, disavow, recantation, desertion, discarding, casting aside. We need to repudiate that old life and all of its connectors. The call of God is a call to repudiate all we once trusted in, whatever it may have been. I'll never forget. The biggest repudiation of all is trusting yourself, right? Now, I was raised in a home that taught us to be independent men, to make our own way, and to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get out, get a job, take care of yourself, and so forth. And I worked hard at that, and I left home when I was 16 years old because of rebelliousness towards my parents and my family. Left home for the wrong reasons. (laughs) And I worked hard at becoming a man, right? And by God's grace, he brought me into a place where I was independent. I was taking care of myself. Everything was great. And then, boom, I heard the gospel. (laughs) And the gospel said, give that all up. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in me. Trust in the gospel. So I had to repudiate everything I had worked for for 19 years. Do you know what repudiation is? Have you experienced that in your life with yourself? with your aspirations, with your ambitions. See, that's all part of the gospel message. It's a part that we usually don't talk about. We talk about the the goodies, the benefits, you know. Oh, you'll have peace with Jesus. Right? Maybe, yeah, you will have peace with Jesus and war with the world. Right? There's a cost to be paid. And that repudiation is important. You know, it's really funny that Abraham, he left his father's house, but he took his father with him. (laughs) Can you believe that? I'm going to talk about that in a minute, about incomplete obedience, but okay, yeah, okay, God, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Come on, Tara, come on, Tara, come on, Tara. And they go to Haran, and they stay there. I don't know how, how many years until Tara died. Do you know what Tara means, the name means? Delay. I'm not kidding. Tara's name means delay. And so Abram took Tara with him to Haran and they dwelt there until he died. That was quite a delay. Quite a delay. I want to talk a little bit about the Abrahamic covenant. We got the part about go forth and leave, right? Now, in verse 2, he talks about a promise that he makes to him, a covenant. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and you, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. There are other covenants in the Bible that have taken place in Genesis. In chapter 1, verse 26 through 30, we have a covenant that God made with Adam. It's called the Adamic covenant. And that was where God told Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die. That was a covenant that he made. It was a conditional covenant. And covenants can be conditional or unconditional. And that was a conditional covenant, and we know what happened. 
He disobeyed. He broke the covenant. And there are repercussions for that. And then there is the Noahic covenant made with Noah after the flood. And God promised Noah to never destroy, he would never destroy again the earth with water of a flood. That's found in Genesis 9, 11. And then he gave him the symbol of a rainbow in the sky as a symbol of that covenant. Isn't it amazing what the rainbow stands for now in our corrupt culture? Don't tell me it's not a fight against God. You're either for God or you're against him. And there's a lot of people who are against God. And now the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And there are two basic types of covenants, conditional and unconditional. A conditional or bilateral covenant is an agreement that is binding on both parties for its fulfillment. So both parties have to agree to a set of circumstances. And then they say, we agree, and this is our covenant, shake hands on it. Well, they did it differently, and we'll get to that in a second. Both parties agree to fulfill certain conditions, and if either party fails to meet their responsibilities of the covenant, the covenant's broken, and neither party must fulfill the expectations of the covenant. In the Adamic covenant, Adam broke the covenant, and God was no longer responsible for that eternal life that he had promised him if he would keep the covenant. And he broke it, and expectations were ruined. An unconditional or unilateral covenant is an agreement between two parties, but only one of the two parties must do something. Nothing is required of the other party. That would be in the Noahic. Noah had no way of stopping flooding waters from coming. He just went through a flood, right? Only God could do that. And so that covenant, that promise that God made with Noah was unilateral. It was unconditional. God was the only one that could implement that covenant. Noah had nothing to do with it. Now, the Lord's covenant with Abraham was the fountain from which flowed all of his redemptive purposes for Israel and for mankind as a whole. In a real sense, the remainder of the biblical account from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation is an outworking of that covenant promise to Abraham. Even Gentile believers are included, at least in a spiritual sense, in the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. We receive that blessing. We're part of all the families of the earth that receive that blessing. It's just an amazing thing. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. And the reason that I say that is because over in chapter 15, over in chapter 15, you can do it, Genesis 15, we read of some very interesting things that take place. Abraham is struggling, okay? His whole life, God promises him that he's going to be this this massive nation of people, having as many children as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea and the dust of the earth. And he went for 25 years with a wife that was barren. And he started out when he was like 75, right? So he's 100 years old when Isaac is born. For those 25 years... He lived in such a way as to be a great example for us of faithfulness and also not so faithful. 
And that's what we're going to be studying. But here we see that this covenant was really an unconditional covenant because in chapter 15, it talks about this Asian way of sealing a covenant. And what you would do is you would get an animal or some animals and you'd cut them in half and then you'd lay them one half on one side, one half on the other side. And then you and the guy that you were making a covenant with would walk between those animals and that was kind of a blood oath, if you will, that you're going to keep the covenant, right? And so you both walk through, and that signified that you both were going to keep that covenant. But an interesting thing happened here when Abraham said, in verse 7, he said, uh, the Lord said to him, Yahweh said to Abraham, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And Abraham said to God, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I'll possess it? He wasn't just struggling with the land. He was struggling with the whole issue of no kids yet. And how is your promise going to be fulfilled? And so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all those to God and Abram cut them in two and laid each half opposite of the other, but he did not cut the birds. Okay, this is all culture and it's not important. It's... It, the thing is, is you got sides of animals that they're going to walk through for this making of the covenant. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. In verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. You know, God was into anesthesiology. Where's Amos? Amos? The first anesthesiologist was God. First he did it with Adam, now he's doing it with Abraham. This deep sleep thing is amazing. And it fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness came upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen to Israel, and Israel's listening to it, having already gone through it. They just got delivered through the Exodus and... and, and, and uh, Moses is explaining to them that God predicted this to their father Abraham way before it ever happened. And they just came through it. But I will also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's exactly what happened in the Exodus. And as, you, and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, he tells Abraham, and will be buried in a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite has not yet come complete. Now look at verse 17. Now it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared, there's that appearing again, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Where was Abram? He was sleeping. He was on the sidelines sleeping, and this torch, this flaming torch, and this smoking oven is symbolic of Yahweh. And so Yahweh walks between these cut animals by himself. That's why it's an unconditional covenant. Abraham had nothing to do with this. And on that, on that day, the Lord, Yahweh, whenever you see Lord all caps like that, it means Yahweh, 
Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Canaanite, and the the Catamite, and all the rest of them. I'm putting in your hands, you will rule over them. You'll take their land. So that's why I say it's an unconditional, unconditional covenant made by Yahweh himself to Abraham. And the components of this, the elements of this, is a land. It was a specific land. It was actual property with dimensions specified in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, like I just read, but you can also see it in 13, 15. God gives Abraham all the land that he can see, and the gift is declared to be forever. Okay? Now, Israel, even, this is more proof that it's, a, it's an eternal covenant forever. Okay? Israel was taken out of that land twice. Can you think of it? Once was during the time of the Babylonian captivity. But what happened after the Babylonian captivity? Israel returned to the land, didn't she? Okay? And then after the uh, AD 70 and the turning over of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews, okay, they were scattered all the way until what date? 48. And they're back in the land. <laughs> it's an unconditional covenant. They will be there. And they will be there forever. The territory given as part of the Abrahamic covenant is expanded in Deuteronomy 31 through 10. You can read about that. And that's often referred to as the Palestinian covenant. Not made with Palestine. It's still made with Israel. But it's talking about the land promise. And that has not been realized yet. They're in the land, but they're not in faith yet. They're in unbelief in the land. But they're there. This is huge. Now, they was also given a nation. God promised that the number of Abraham's children would rival that of the dust of the earth, Genesis uh, 15, 16. Nations and kings would proceed from him. <laughs> and God's promising this to him over and over and reaffirming it. 25 years, no children. His wife was barren. And the third element was a blessing or a seed that he promised to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is also included with a blessing, a promise of redemption. It's found in verse 3 of chapter 12. All the families of the earth would be blessed through Abram. And the promise finds its fulfillment in a new covenant, as seen in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. When you read over the new covenant, it's a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant, and it covers redemption. The promise of forgiveness of sins is found, and it was ratified by Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, and redeemer who will one day restore everything. Acts 3.21. He's called the son of Abraham, and he will restore all things. Galatians 3.16 says this very interesting thing. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham. Okay, Galatians is in the New Testament, right? We're a long way from 2000 BC. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. Seed. It does not say, and to seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed. And in case you're really thick, 
It says, who is Christ? <laughs> That's why I use the new, uh, new American Standard Bible. Words really matter. They really matter. Individual words. Paul takes out this word seed, which was promised to Abraham, referring to Messiah. And he illustrates that he wasn't talking about many seeds, all those children that he would have. As he was talking about one seed. It's a redemptive plan contained in the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, who is Christ? Well, the Abrahamic covenant extends through the entire Bible, and it's seen to be reiterated to Abraham numerous times, but also to his descendants, to Jacob, to Isaac. It's reiterated, the same covenant. And we're going to be studying all about this. I I don't want to get into the next section right now. I'm going to let you go a little bit early, unbelievable. But if I got into this, we'd be here till probably 1 o'clock, okay? Because we're going to talk about Abraham's foibles. Because the Bible presents its heroes, warts and all, right? David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery. Not only adultery, he committed murder. A man after God's own heart. Abraham, the friend of God, had a lot of problems. And we're going to look at them. Because he's called the friend of God. And therein should be great hope for us, right? Great hope for us. Because he can come over and make up for all the mess-ups that we do. And he's not only willing, he actually does it. And you know that's true in your life if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. Right? You're still walking with him. And you haven't been perfect, and neither have I. And so just go home with that thought today, how God supersedes over our failings and continues to love us in his great mercy and shower us with grace, which is undeserved for sure. And we're the recipients, right? He's sovereign. We receive from him all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Abraham, for his story. He's such an interesting man. And he has so many adventures in his journey of faith. And we just relate to him so much as he struggles to figure out how can this promise be true when my wife is barren and I have no children? 25 years is a long time, Lord. And yet you brought him through all of it. And in the end, you gave him that promised seed, Isaac, through which the real promised seed, Jesus Christ, came. All thank you for this wonderful story and for the magnificence of your Bible. In Jesus' name, amen.